This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Well, guess who's back? The team. Indeed we are. It's a Tuesday <laughs> edition this time around the 5th of February. This is Classic Business Breakfast with MoneyWeb. My name is Arabile Gumede. And finally, she's back. Tash, hello. Hello. I'm happy to know that you missed me. Uh, don't know. Don't go too far on that one. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, nonetheless, uh, I'm happy to be back. We've got, uh, what's your favorite word? Jam-packed show. <laughs> yes, yes, because that's exactly what it is. It's an hour with a whole lot of stuff happening in it. Mm-hmm. Hardly time to breathe. Um, so we, we, you know, we unpack the day's business news, whether it be yesterday, today, look forward to what might happen for the rest of today as well then. So we'll get to chat about uh, quite a few things as well. Will the minimum wage leave workers a little worse off than they were before? You know, that becomes a little bit of a question here that uh, perhaps people will only give them exactly what they need to and not necessarily a little bit more than that. So perhaps in some situations it may hurt. So we'll chat about that around quarter past seven. And ESCOM expects to make a wider 20 billion rand loss in the current financial year and wants steeper tariff hikes than it previously sought. And the CEOs also said that government should consider injecting extra capital into the power utility to help it cope with what he said were low electricity tariffs. So we'll speak to Antoinette Slabert, who is a journalist at MoneyWeb, because she was at the NERSA ESCOM hearing about the latest on that side. Also, we've got the mining in Daba happening right now, of course, down in uh, Cape Town. But is mining still a powerhouse segue, particularly ahead of the State of the Nation address, which happens then on Thursday, also in Cape Town? So we'll chat about that and see exactly whether it's still as big as it used to be. And let's remember that uh, the likes of Anglo-American have cited quite a few fears despite uh, investing a whole lot further in South Africa, too. And there have been calls for ESCOM board members to be declared delinquent. We'll speak to David Lewis from Corruption Watch about that and what he makes of the recent revelations that came out of uh, NERSA yesterday with regards to um, ESCOM's financial position. It's worse off than we thought. All of this and more is coming up. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. The market indicators are brought to you by the FNB Business 48-Hour Cash Accelerator. Get great rates and fast access. Now, the JSE fell off on Monday, and that was particularly in cautious trade as investors waited for fresh catalysts or news with regards to corporate earnings, giving the market a little bit more of its direction, particularly by close of trade. A few miners coming out with some detail as well. The RAND was a little bit softer, extending losses that it had suffered from over the weekend, and it has also put some pressure on the banking stocks, and even the retailers feeling it a touch as well. Then yesterday, global sentiment was dented, of course, by disappointing Chinese numbers, uh, and that has hurt uh, a lot of them with a primary private uh, gauge of service activity for January, undershooting expectations, local gold miners fearing the worst, while general index lost almost 4% uh, as well there in January, following a spat of disappointing earnings reports. So Monday, the all share losing 1% to 53,391 points uh, by close of trade. Gold miners down 3.8%, retailers 4%, banks 2.8%. Uh, by close of trade platinum miners, however, adding 
2.5% there. Let's check in now on your currencies. It's 13.39 for a US dollar. It's 15 rand 31 for a euro. And a British pound setting you back 17 rand and 47 cents. Over in Asia, of course, uh, uh, Shanghai should be closed off. Uh, it was closed off for that lunar holiday, so things were a little precarious there. Things steaming back in one and a third of a percent to the good for the Shanghai Composite. Two tenths of a percent higher for the Hang Seng. Well, the Nikkei is down a tenth of a percent there. $1,314 a fine ounce for gold. Platinum's at $823 a fine ounce. Brent crude, $62.88 a barrel. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Eight minutes after seven, then to talk more in depth on the markets, we're joined on the line by Hussein Syed, who's a chief market strategist at FXTM, and in studio is Chantal Marks, who's a portfolio manager at F&B Wealth and Investment. Hussein, I'm going to start off with you. Let's start off by uh, looking at how the global market uh, performed, perhaps uh, the beginning of the week. Hi. Uh, good morning. You know, as we can see that we have seen. Uh, good rally uh, since the start of the week. In fact, it started after Wednesday's Fed uh, meeting, the last one. And what we can see here is like a significant shift in policy. And the Fed has almost took a U-turn. It was like a 180 degrees shift from indicating that interest rates will be gradually rising and the balance sheet will be shrinking at autopilot mode. Suddenly, we see that all this has changed. And we can see that since the beginning of the year, uh, or since the last quarter of 2018, we have been talking about we are almost at the end of this economic cycle. And what we can see now is the Federal Reserve trying to prolong this economic cycle. And in fact, this could be giving uh, equity markets a little bit of boost, but this is just for the U.S. If you look at the global scale, we don't see this key ingredients as well for all equities because looking at Europe, we can see the slowdown, uh, especially from Italy and Germany. This could continue affecting growth uh, and, and earnings. We can see also China uh, not doing great. So uh, we can see that this kind of synchronized uh, growth is, again, uh, just focus on the U.S. more than the rest of the world. Right. Chantal, I'm going to bring you uh, in this conversation. Arabila mentioned in his uh, market snippet that the JSC fell yesterday. Let's talk about some of the factors that contributed to that. Yeah, I think there were two main factors yesterday. Uh, firstly, the retailers were very weak again across the board. We've had some disappointing uh, trading updates and trading statements from that sector. And as a result, we've seen... Um, analysts downgrade their estimates and those downgrades are starting to accelerate and it also seems as if they've been a little bit more aggressive than they've been in the past usually these guys are quite measured they'll cut by a few cents here or there but they've actually cut quite deeply not only for this year but also for next year one could argue that it's a little bit uh, overkill but I mean the market reacts to what what expectations are and expectations for retailers are weaker And then I also saw the financial sector come under quite a bit of pressure. 
that would have been mainly related to to the rand weakening yeah. out a little bit. Still quite strong, mm. I might add, but the rand definitely weakening out a little bit, um, probably on the back of a bit more strength in developed market currencies. All right, Hussein. I mean, you mentioned a little bit earlier. You touched on uh, you know the fact that we still have you know corporate earnings from the U.S. coming in. What's been your assessment thus far of some of the numbers that uh, these companies are reporting? You know, it's a kind of mixed outlook now because looking at overall earnings, almost 50% of the S&P 500 companies have announced earnings and we can see almost a 70% beat on the bottom line or on the EPS. But what's worrying me now in terms of earnings is that we're starting seeing some pressure on the margins. And I think this is what we're going to be focusing on on Q1 2019, uh, as well as yesterday, uh, uh, earning uh, results from from Alphabet, where we see also some pressures on 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 Google uh, uh, margins. So, uh, you know whether this is going to be impacting heavily uh, on 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 uh, earnings for Q1 2019, because we have started seeing also some guidance, negative guidance from uh, from a couple of companies, uh, and this could be putting a kind of question mark uh, for for this quarter. And whether we're going to see, uh, in fact, a drop in, in earnings in terms of year-on-year growth. So this could be keeping like uh, uh, a kind of uh, ceiling on, on the prices. Um, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm now preferring value on uh, on growth uh, stocks. So because you know I, I would prefer some kind of companies that won't be impacted as much as the growth when it comes in terms of uh, GDP growth. Right. Chantel, we've also had some numbers trickling in on the local side. Any companies thus far that either have shocked you on the downside or at least surprised you pleasantly so far? I must say, yesterday we had um, a trading statement come out of Impala Platinum that really surprised me. I mean, Impala have been under so much pressure over the last uh, few years. Platinum prices have been quite low. These guys are more exposed to platinum than they are to palladium. Mm. Um, And I think about two years ago, they actually started shutting down shafts, laying off workers, and kind of guiding that if they are not able to successfully restructure, they'd actually have to close their doors. Yesterday, they released a trading statement basically saying that for the half year, earnings are more than the market expected for the whole entire full year. Um, So definitely um, a better operational performance, better PGM prices. And I think that this is something that could filter through to the rest of the platinum, Mm. to the platinum sector. So for now, platinum is surprising me to the upside. And then obviously, big disappointments coming through from the retailers. Um, the African consumer, uh, pressure not dissipating and um, people not willing to spend money at the moment. Wow. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Hussein, thank you so much for your time. That's Hussein Said, who's the chief market strategist at FXTM. We still have Chantal Marks from F&B Wealth and Investment in studio with us. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. So the question of the minimum wage has come into the focus lens, I suppose, then. And the question becomes, will it perhaps leave uh, workers a little more worse off than they were beforehand? This question, of course, comes uh, uh, you know, at the back of the minimum wage coming into effect this year as well. And just what it actually means 
to to actually have this for whether it be NGOs, whether it be you know whoever it is really that that takes on the mantle. So let's chat about this now with Mervyn Abrams, who's program uh, uh, coordinator rather at the Peter Maritzburg Economic Justice and Dignity Group. Mervyn, thank you so much for your time this morning. Um, how significant is is the shift and the change between? no minimum wage and now having the minimum wage and what are the changes that it sort of you know could bring to a lot of workers good morning everybody and good morning to all your listeners um when the national minimum wage was first talked about it was said that it was going to help 6.7 million of south africa's most vulnerable workers so these would be workers for instance like cashiers and security guards and farm workers etc However, because uh, the corporate sector opposed it ferociously, uh, the state has now introduced the idea of exemption and have granted a 10% exemption for all those companies that cannot afford to pay. What that exemption does, 10% difference, actually will take the wages as it's currently determined. Uh, to a lower level. So can I give you an example, for instance? Yes, please. In the, in the wholesale and retail sector, for instance, the sectoral determination for a cashier is 21 rand and 91 cents per hour. For a security guard, it is 18 rand and 28 cents per hour. However, with the uh, exemptions being granted to the national minimum wage, their wage will now reduce to around 18,000 should their employer apply for an exemption. And what we are saying then is, in fact, workers might be worse off with the exemptions being granted than they are currently being protected under the sectoral determination. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're necessarily against the minimum wage you're perhaps seeking or looking towards perhaps getting you know an alteration with regards to the the protection of workers and their wages yes no we are not opposed in principle to a national minimum wage Mm. what we are arguing the national minimum wage is only effective for workers and when we say workers we mean the entire economy actually because workers are the consumers that drive your, your spending in the economy. But it is where you set that wage. If that wage is set too low, you actually reinforce a structural low-wage economy. And so the important thing is where do you set that minimum wage? And we believe that the minimum wage has actually been set too low for it Firstly, to help with the household affordability crisis that workers are facing in the country. And secondly, because workers are the main spenders across the economy and through their wages are buying uh, goods and services and hence create markets for that goods and services, Mm. it will also lead to a slowdown in our economic growth. 
the long-term effect of this then is, is of course, that, as you said, it worsens the situation, doesn't necessarily make it better. But as you said, the sentiment around the minimum wage is great. Have you at least been in conversation with government, with the, the, the relevant authorities, with regards to perhaps, you know, getting that in mind? Has that been, you know, something that has at least been notified to them so that it can at least be, be looked at uh, to change in any particular way, if not amended? Uh, we have engaged uh, at the level of parliament um, and various civil society actors have engaged with the, with the state. But it seems now that the national minimum wage has been implemented. Uh, uh, the exemptions have come through. The regulations around exemptions have been passed. And it seems that this is going to be... Um, that that Parliament has basically signed off on it. The the president has has uh, has signed the act into law. So we're really on the back foot at the moment. Mm. And one part of being on the back foot is that concurrently with the national minimum wage has also been changes in labour legislation, in the sense that trade unions now have restrict the the, the right to strike has actually been restricted. So we, we find ourselves in quite a bad economic situation, and it's driven really by, by the thought or the idea that we need to create jobs. Now, of course, that is true. We have to create jobs. The point is that we have to create jobs that actually pay at a level that can ease and take people out of poverty. It is no value to the economy generally and the long-term trajectory of South Africa if we have a, a national minimum wage that is so low that when it is dispersed through a household of four people, because we have about one worker for four people in South Africa, in black South Africa anyway, then we come in at lower than the national poverty line. Mm-hmm. And, and that is what we currently have. And so while we might have maintained some of these jobs, we are causing economic structural damage uh, in the long term to the country. Yeah. Mervyn, appreciate your time this morning. Certainly one to, I think, keep a hold of and really try to fix the situation and the scenario in itself and, and, you know, make sure it is better for workers than it is to make it worse. Mervyn Abrams is Program Coordinator at the Peter Maritzburg Economic Justice and Dignity Group. Let's quickly check in on your traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's 23 minutes after 7. Eskom expects to make a wider 20 billion rand loss in the current financial year and one steeper tariff hikes than it previously sought. The CEO also said that uh, government should consider injecting extra capital into Eskom to help it cope with what he said were low electricity tariffs. And to tell us a little bit more about what happened uh, yesterday is Antoinette Slabash, who's a journalist at MoneyWeb. Antoinette, perhaps uh, you can give us some uh, information with regards to to how did we get to this larger forecast loss than what was previously uh, indicated to us? Good morning, Natasha. Yes, uh, I think at the meeting yesterday, that was 
it's quite extraordinary when the CFO said this year they predict a 20 billion loss and next year even if they get the tariff increase, a 19, actually almost a 20 billion loss as well. And um, what he said is, is that ESCOM is really in deep trouble. And he emphasized that um, the auditors with the lowest financial results uh, highlighted the, the concern about ESCOM's um, going concern status. And he said if there's no relief and ESCOM continues on this path, then they might even be in a position where they will have to uh, file the uh, financial results on a liquidation basis. Uh, he, he appealed to the um, to NERSA to uh, understand the seriousness of ESCOM's financial position. And the big problem there is that sales are flat, costs are increasing, and especially the cost of borrowing. Uh, ESCOM does not even get enough cash to pay the um, to make the debt repayment every month. Right. And I know um, Arthur said that um, they will actually, I, th- I think if I'm not mistaken, they're opposing that last-minute change ESCOM has made to its tariff application. From your perspective, will it make any difference at this stage? Uh, the opposition to the, to the application, yeah, uh, there were several uh, uh, parties that criticised ESCOM for these last-minute changes, but you sort of between a rock and a hard place. Uh, does the regulator allow the, the um, flawed assumptions and just, you know, approve uh, something, uh, approve an increase based on flawed assumptions? Or does it uh, ask ESCOM to correct the assumptions, knowing that stakeholders uh, uh, won't have time to really address those changes, you know, and comment? Because these things are very technical. You have to prepare. You have to study. It takes a lot of time to go through the application in detail, to to check whether you agree with it, and to formulate a position. And many of these bodies represent different stakeholders. For example, Bursa, they represent a wide variety of stakeholders. So they also have to consult these stakeholders before they can formulate a position. Now, how do you do that if, you know, the day before the last hearing, there are fundamental changes? But ESCOM has been criticized over a long period for the way they, for example, forecast sales. They are too optimistic. And yesterday, some of the regulator members were very critical of ESCOM. For example, Mr. Jacob Medici, he said to ESCOM, you know, your sales have been flat since 2007, but it seems as if it's business as usual on your side. You don't reduce the size of your business as any other business would do if the sales are flat or shrinking. You just continue to 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 build your business and grow your business, um, and can consumers be expected to pay for that? The Nelson Mandela Day uh, business chamber, they actually represented a lot of other business chambers as well. They criticised the capital scheme. They said you have excess capacity. Uh, granted, the capacity does not perform as it should. You know, you're not getting the the energy out of those stations that they should deliver. But in stored capacity, you have more than enough. But you are building more and more power stations. You are continuing 
with spending on the DPNP ceiling and the RTP development is continuing, we should stop the capital spending, guys. So there was very strong views, and, and ESCOM was criticized a lot for, for the low energy availability at their power stations as well. Right. When are we expecting NERSA to make its final decision with regards to this tariff request? Uh, the decision should be available around the end of March because it has to be um, uh, uh, inserted in the municipal budget process. Uh, so, you know, the, the municipalities should know what the ESCOM increase is for them to know what their increases should be uh, and those budgets has to be approved by the end of May, but it's quite a process that it has to go through before it gets to the point of approval. Antoinette, thank you so much for your time. This is Antoinette Slabert, who's a journalist at MoneyWeb. And I'm just looking at an article that is on the Money website with regards to what is happening with ESCOM. Of course, it's titled ESCOM Sees 20 Billion Rand Full Year Loss and Seeks Higher Tariff Hikes. And in the article, uh, there is a quote from uh, CEO Pagamani Hadebe, who told the mining conference in Cape Town, that is the mining in Daba, that government should consider splitting up the utility. And he used a very interesting term in order to describe that splitting up Arabile. He called it functionally unbundling. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if that makes any sense. If that's just words used to just, you know, sort of try and aid the story. It doesn't actually say <laughs> anything, though, does it? Or maybe just ease the fact that we are breaking this thing up as we've been talking about over the past year or so, but this is a nicer way of saying this is what we're doing. I don't know, it's weird. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make full-on sense. But anyway. All right, let's have a look at news headlines. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's 7.31, so let's get into, uh, you know, the, the mining in Dubbo, which is continuing, of course, right now. And the one element, of course, of South Africa's economy that we would like to see continually boosted. And political stability has certainly you know, unsettled things, perhaps, on that front. Policy uncertainty has clearly been uh, quite a big issue. Uh, whether the mining charter is a little too late with regards to the attractiveness of investment is going to be, perhaps, a, f- uh, a question to answer. And investment attractiveness is often Obviously, key then to creating uh, what some would call uh, shared value for mining in South Africa. Now, that is also the message from President Cyril Ramaphosa, and he's uh, uh, seeking to tackle that at the mining in Daba thus far this week. So, mining, of course, a dominant industry, or once was at least a dominant industry in South Africa. Uh, high costs now is the, some of the things that it's had to contend with: uh, labor unrest, regulatory uncertainty. Uh, you know, job losses, of course, as well. Uh, how is the Department of Mineral Resources going to encourage exploration and the junior mining sector as well and an industry that is so stifled and so uh, hindered and injured as well? Let's chat to Andrew Lane, who is Energy and Resources Leader at Deloitte Africa. Andrew, uh, if you've heard that, uh, that intro, it all just sounds so dire. But can the situation look at least a little bit better? Yeah, good morning, Arabila. Yeah. No, look, I think the mood at Indaba this year is certainly a lot more positive than it was last year. Um, you know, I think the, as the minister's speech yesterday was, was quite refreshing. You know, he reflected on the fact that, um, you know, even though the economy 
does seem to have averted a technical recession or recovered from a technical recession. You know, the mining industry didn't make any real contribution to that. Um, you know, and it's an, it's an industry that's whose contribution to GDP and has declined over the years, and then that's that's lost, that's uh, shed a fair number of jobs. But I think there is hope. You know, he was certainly um, he was certainly saying that South Africa is open business. Um, I think that you know finalising the mining charter is one thing. I think investors are still a little bit cautious, um, you know, wanting to see exactly how how government policy pans out. Um, but yeah, certainly, certainly more positive than it was this time last year. Yeah. The question is, should we be looking at mining in a different sense? And what I mean by that is, yes, we, we continue to mention it and hold on to it nearly and dearly as the bedrock of South Africa's economy. But should we perhaps be looking at it now in, in a future sense and asking ourselves just how can we adapt to changing circumstances and not look to make it the, the, you know, the big powerhouse it used to be, but really more just a positive contributor at a constant level for longer? Well, you know, the mining industry is, is um, facing, I think, quite a high level of uncertainty if you're looking to the future. Um, you know, I you know, historically we all believed in the cycle. You know, what goes up must go, must come down, and mm. you just keep digging stuff out, and, and everything works out. I don't think it's it's a given that the commodities we mine today are all going to be relevant in the future. You know, there's a there's a debate around coal. Mm. Um, there's lots of hype around battery battery minerals and cobalt and, and lithium and copper. So I think that that you know making big decisions. Um, in a long-term industry, it's getting increasingly difficult. And, and, I, and I do think that, that the industry is seeking ways of, of being more agile, not having to make these massive investments that take 30 years to pay off. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think that that whole transition is also being fueled by technology to a certain extent. So, I, yeah, it is, I think it's, there is a, a certain level of uncertainty that makes decision-making quite difficult. Yeah, I, I suppose so. So the relevance then of the mining in Daba, is it still as relevant as it used to be? Um, and if so, is the focus then really just no longer on the current format of mining, but really on the future? Look, I think it's a bit of both. Eh? Um, I mean, the, 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 I mean, mining in Daba is titled Investing in Mining in Daba, in, in, in African Mining. So it really is about attracting investors and connecting investors to to. Uh, to, to projects, you know, and you know, it's it's you know, I mean, you mentioned the word shared value in your in your run-up, which is something we certainly believe in, um, and I think the industry believes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it all starts with making a profit, yeah. Uh, and, the, and the minister acknowledged that. So you know, you do need the capital to come in, you do need access to the resource, um, and it's the governments and both people that give you grant you access to the resource. Mm-hmm. So you know, we've got to kind of work together as a, as a bunch of disparate stakeholders with different needs, and I think. Yeah. Change in legislation, has that perhaps helped or has it come a little too late, particularly with regards to uh, Charter 3.0? I think it's helped. But, you know, one of the problems with uh, with this industry is you know, the mining cycle and the electoral cycle do not always align with each other. So I think, um, you know, I think people are, are relieved that this thing has been finalized. But I, I think there's still a bit of caution out there in terms of, you know, how long is this going to stay safe. Uh, Oh, I think we may. Sorry, and uh, yeah, the line I think just went a little bit bad on on the on the okay. latter part of your answer there. Um, I was just saying that that um, you know, the, the, unfortunately, the mining cycle and the electoral cycle don't always synchronize with each other. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think 
I think there is a certain amount of, of relief that the charter has been signed. Right? But I think there's also a little bit of caution out there as to how long are things going to remain unchanged. Mm. So the one issue that we've constantly faced, of course, is the, the, uh, you know, the job losses as well, capital efficiency, making sure you spend the right amount of capital in the right areas, because obviously it's not like before where you can sort of just spend in the mining sector itself or just keep reaping you some rewards in that front. How important is it to change strategies, but align strategies with the right stakeholders as well? Because all the interests, of course, of historical figures will still uh, be uh, a key motivator, will still be of keen focus. You know, a lot of people will still look to it and say, but we want our interests served here. So trying to find the right pathway and still navigating yeah. through all the stakeholders, how, how significant and how important is that right now? And can it actually even be done right? So it's, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's a comp- that's quite a complex issue. And I mean, I think, I think it is a fact that mines are modernizing and digitizing. You know? And I think everybody's accepted that, even the minister accepts that. Um, so the nature of the workforce is going to change going forward, um, which, which creates two, a couple of problems. The first is, you know, it's a different profile of skills that you need. So firstly, where are you going to find those skills? Uh, secondly, of the people I've got, how many of them are, are retrainable into the new skill set? But then thirdly, and more importantly, that, you know, if you think about the social dividend and the expectations that society have of the industry, um, you know, if the, the nature of your workforce changes, the social expectation hasn't changed. You know, so I think there is a real challenge to think about how, how we meet our social obligations in a world where the, the nature of the wage bill is, is changing. And, and I think, I have a personal point of view that, that certainly things like your procurement spend become a whole lot more important, and the charter starts to drive you that way. Um, but I think it's really, really important to think that you, to, to think about that you know, the investor has an interest, government has an interest, and the people who live outside the gates have an interest. Um, and that equation has to balance in some form or fashion to make the whole thing successful. Yeah, makes a makes a whole lot of sense. And I suppose then the conversations, as you said, need to be altered and make sure that we sort of align uh, the things we really want to get out of this industry now, because it is becoming a little more difficult uh, and different as well as time progresses. Andrew, appreciate your time this morning. I uh, hope you have a wonderful one. Andrew Lane is Energy and Resources Leader at Deloitte Africa. We will continue to chat about the mining sector and, of course, with the mining daba continuously happening uh, this week uh, until, I think, the 7th, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in Cape Town. We'll chat about that as well right after this traffic break. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. All right, so we're chatting now about mining. And, of course, with the uh, uh, African mining endeavor currently happening, things have, of course, taken a focus and a look at just how sustainable mining, not only in South Africa, but across the African continent and perhaps then across the world really can be. Just how significant, how important is it that we get the shift and the mix quite right? And, of course, even after having... Uh, the mining charter uh, 3.0, as many are calling it here in South Africa. The interesting element is how sustainable is it with regards to business. So let's talk about that and all things mining in Daba. Nivash Singh, head of mining and resources finance international at Nedbank, joins us on the line. Nivash, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, I suppose the challenges then for particularly the banking sector operating in a mining scenario uh, is one where you have to be extremely cautious because things haven't necessarily gone that well. 
Absolutely. Thanks, uh, Aradila. Um, you know, mining is a, is a, it's a cyclical industry mm. that operates with many risks. Uh, the idea is to identify those risks and to create mitigation uh, for these risks. Um, it's, a, it's a very dynamic industry which has huge potential for growth and development, but if managed incorrectly, it can be a disaster. In trying to manage those disasters, do you feel that enough attention has been paid uh, to, you know, to ensuring the sustainability of mining in the long run? It seems that there are a lot of, uh, you know, moving parts to this, and one of them is that people want the money and they want it now. And you know, whatever historical issues there may be, it all has just affected the the, the sustainability of South Africa's mining sector and perhaps even the continents. Absolutely, I mean. Mining is a long-term business. Um, it's, there, are, there are no quick gains, and if not managed carefully, you could end up with multiple losses. Um, host governments across the continent, um, in, in, in the bull market when prices, commodity prices are high, they are generally quite uh, um, you know, um, demanding in terms of royalties and taxes and additional regulation. But in cases where the commodity cycle turns and prices fall, um, you find that they reopen up the borders for new investment. Um, so government is a factor that affects mining industry in general. And, you know, as mining owners, mining company project owners, they need to do their best in terms of managing government and the expectations. Yeah. Uh, what about the availability of funding, particularly for the junior miners who need it the most at this point? And, uh, and also, why is it so important that they choose, uh, you know, the funding partners extremely carefully, especially in this time? I think there's lots of liquidity at the moment in the mining sector, especially in the junior mining sector. You find that there's debt funds um, that are competing with commercial banks such as ourselves. Um, and, and the advice we're giving to mining project owners is that you need to choose your partners carefully. This is a long-term game. Um, it's not a short-term perspective. Um, when things go wrong, you, as a mining company, you need partners that understand the cycle, the commodity cycle, and able to cope with uh, a depressed cycle when the cycle turns. Because the one thing we know for certain, Aradile, is that the commodity cycle does not always trend upwards. Mm-hmm. It will um, turn adversely to affect cash flow in the short to medium term. And you need partners that can work with you on a long-term basis to work through those difficult patches. One would say that it perhaps isn't as necessarily as viable, even if you work through those, those tough patches. Would you agree with a sentiment like that, or is it just a case of finding the right sort of hold or the right market to, to go into? Well, you know, there are many factors that, that, that impact uh, uh, sustainability in mining. For example, you've got terrorism in the, in the western part of the continent and the eastern parts of the continent as well, which no banker, no commodity expert could have forecast. Um, so I think it's, uh, there are some risks which, 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 which will not be identified at inception. Um, again, it comes back to um, identifying, assessing, evaluating risks at the beginning and managing those as best as you can.
Mm. All right, then what about uh, you know, resource nationalism, as they're calling it, and, and, and what it means for you know, that lending space, for banks who are obviously trying to lend mining to mining companies, not just as we, we mentioned in South Africa, but across the continent too? Yes, and I think that's, that's a really important uh, point. Keep in mind that the mining in Dharma is not a mining conference for the South African economy only. It's an African mining conference. Mm-hmm. Resource nationalism is peaking on the continent. I think, to be fair, host governments are looking for their fair share of uh, taxes, royalties, and uh, and distributions. Um, the uh, uh, mining companies are being encouraged to uh, to pay their fair share of taxes and royalties. Um, and and we and we saying to all our clients that you need to be a good corporate citizen in the country in which you operate in order to be successful. Yeah, Nivash, really appreciate your time this morning, but really, really great having you uh, on the show there. That's uh, uh, just chatting about a whole lot of this mining sector and funding for it, right? And uh, Nivash Singh is head of mining uh, as well as uh, Resource Finance International at Nedbank CIB. Thank you for joining us on the line for that one. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. All right, so it's 7.49. A quick look at some other news making headlines yesterday. Anglo CEO uh, just also highlighting the significance and the risk of ESCOM. Mark Kutafani highlighting that ESCOM is the biggest risk to Anglo-Americans, South African business in the short term. This is not new, Chantel. This is something that every company is going to look at and say, yeah, yeah, ESCOM is a big risk. Yeah, it's not only every company. It's probably every individual. Um, it's every statesman. Um, at the moment, uh, ESCOM's debt situation is completely out of control, as Internet highlighted earlier. Um, and because government does stand surety or has has basically a surety on those loans um, it, it's what you call a contingent liability on the government's balance sheet and it puts the government at risk for miners specifically they are quite energy intensive a lot of them are not energy self-sufficient and they're reliant on escom so if escom has any sort of issue with power or if escom prices go up by too much it directly impacts their ability to produce and also their bottom line so what i think is going to happen here is that these guys are going to start generating their own electricity in some way or another and that's going to place even more pressure on escom mm, i mean just think about it if more than 15 percent increase in uh, electricity prices is exactly what ESCOM is asking NERSA for, the National Energy Regulator. Technically, it's 17.1% in the first year, 15.4% in year two, and 15.5% in the third year there. Uh, the Minerals Council of South Africa warning that the implementation of that tariff increase, of those tariff increases over the three years, would wipe out at least 150,000 jobs or one-third of all the people working in the mining sector in South Africa. So that is definitely going to hurt in some way or other. ESCOM is a risk not just to Anglo, but clearly uh, to the country as a whole. Now, MTN has also said that uh, full-year earnings rose uh, as, as it shrugged off its tax dispute in Nigeria to report growth across its 21 markets. So MTN doing well, not because of Nigeria, but despite Nigeria. 
Yeah, so, I mean, MTN is recovering off a relatively low base. Um, we have seen, seen a recovery for them in their largest markets, which is Nigeria, um, South Africa, and then to a certain extent, Iran. Um, the problem with MTN is just that it's such a risky, it, it operates in such risky jurisdictions. Um, and what we've seen out of Nigeria is that regulatory uncertainty um continues to weigh on the rating for this company or the valuation for this company and will probably continue to do so in future. Um, if you're unsure about the operating environment that you're in, your consumer could be coming to the party in terms of data purchases and equipment purchases and making phone calls. Um, but penalties remain a big issue. In Iran, for example, sanctions remain a big issue. Are they going to be able to repatriate cash both out of Nigeria and out of Iran? What does it mean for the dividend? So even though earnings seem to be doing quite well, there are still a lot of question marks around this company. But then the picture could be a little rosier if all those things do come to to the fore, right? So they yeah. they certainly want to push for it and try to get there. No, I mean, MTN, from a, just from a structural point of view and from a broader thematic point of view, yeah. are absolutely in the pound seats as kind of the main uh, telecommunications provider for, for Africa, ex-South Africa, which you could argue is ex-growth. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of on, at the final frontier yeah, for, mm. for growth in telecommunications. The markets in which it operates still has low uh, cell phone penetration rates. It still has low smartphone penetration rates. So the scope for growth is amazing. If you can just get the regulatory environment stabilized a little mm. bit, um, I'm sure it will translate into fantastic gains for, for MTN. But mm. those, those risks are very real. So I wouldn't... Yeah. I wouldn't discount them um, quickly. Yeah, quite worrisome for them. And hopefully they get that sorted very, uh, very soon for themselves. Very quickly as well, Group 5, uh, share price falling as much as 44% yesterday, closing down 30%, down at 75 cents, however, a share. Uh, this was uh, on Friday after announcing that the CEO, Temba Musai, had resigned. Uh, so the company there is continuing to struggle that construction sector clearly not doing too well either. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. At 7.55, uh, Corruption Watch has uh, filed an application calling for former ESCOM board members to be declared delinquent. And to talk to us about it is David Lewis from Corruption Watch. David, thank you so much for your time this morning. Let's talk about why uh, you filed this application. Because we believe that those uh, directors named in the application are partly responsible through ignoring their fiduciary duty towards ESCOM for the state that ESCOM is in at the moment and indeed for the state that the South African economy is in at the moment and we think they must be held to account for their acts and their omissions that have led uh, ESCOM into this cul-de-sac. From your experience, um, the launch of applications such as this to have uh, you know, directors declared delinquent, um, what happens in the process once you've filed it and um, does it come into effect? I mean, how does it all work? Well, we filed an application to the High Court and, uh, and uh, the directors concerned uh, are, are to respond within, I would think, a, a couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, we would then the help. You know, you'd go through the whole formal court process. We'd then file our answers to that, and the date would be set, and we would argue 
before the court why they should be declared delinquent. The court will make its decision. We've asked for them to be barred from any directorships in public enlisted companies or private companies for seven years and to be barred from directorships of state-owned enterprises for life. Right. We are in the middle of, uh, I think, commissions of inquiries, whether we're dealing with state capture and we're dealing with the PIC and probably various others that will come out since then. But Mm -hmm. we also have issues with other state-owned entities that were found to be wanting when it comes to issues of governance, etc. Will you also look into perhaps filing applications for directors who were part of that particular story? We might, you know, these uh, these applications are, are are lengthy and you know to some extent costly for us. Uh, you know, what we're looking to do here is to test what we consider to be a very important provision in the Companies Act, and uh, you know we'll wait to see the outcome of this unless you know something occurs in a state-owned enterprise that we find you know, particularly uh, important to take up at this stage. And there are arguably others. There are cases in SAA of what we believe of delinquency. There are cases in in Donnell or in, in Transnet. But this is the one we have selected where we believe we have a good chance of winning and where we believe we have the chance of making law and setting uh, precedent and and we think very important precedent. You know, people take seats on boards, particularly of state-owned enterprises, it would appear, or have in the past, because of the board fees and and the commercial networks that it brings. Those are not reasons for taking up these jobs. Uh, you know, I speak from experience when I say they're extremely uh, demanding, extremely complex jobs where you owe a duty you know, to the shareholders who are ultimately the people of South Africa. And you take that on, you think twice before you take on the responsibility quite that onerous. And when you take it on, you perform your duties. You don't look for commercial opportunities or sit and sleep through the meetings and bank your board fee at the end of it. Mm. It needs to be something treated seriously. And this is the purpose of this application. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. That's David Lewis from Corruption Watch. Just quickly, before we wrap up the show, I have a fun fact. Uh, Facebook is celebrating uh, 15 years, as we know. And um, back in 2007, there were um, social media sites such as MySpace. We all remember MySpace. <laughs> and uh, Facebook happened to surpass MySpace back in, 20, in 2007 uh, by more than twice uh, the traffic that uh, MySpace was used to getting. And there was also things like High Five and Friendster and Ocut. I've never heard of those. Oh but uh, yeah, 15 years. So you can sure. check out that article in the Wall Street Yeah, a lot has definitely happened in that time, hasn't it? Yeah. Jeepers. Okay, so that's how we close the show. Thank you so much for your time, folks. And as usual, we're going to end off February with this special feature. We're going to get our market commentators to say the esteemed words. It's goodbye from us. Goodbye from me. It's 8 o'clock.